Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and this is the third episode in a four-part series on the connections between science and architecture in Victorian Britain. This time, we're following up on how geologists and biologists, and designers and builders, all took inspiration from the past by looking at how a different group of scientists, engineers, embraced the materials and markets of the present to build some of the era's most spectacular and enduring structures. This episode builds on the previous two, so if you haven't listened to those yet, you should go back and do so now. Then, join me back here as we head out to London's western suburbs to stroll through one of the most iconic Victorian landscapes. visit the Crystal Palace, the building that inspired a generation of builders. But you can still go to a collection of structures that give you some sense of what a visit to the Great Exhibition might have been like. They're the glass houses of the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew, one of the world's great centers of botanical research since its founding at the dawn of the Victorian era in 1840. The British Empire had a vested interest in botany, which was central to imperial economy and security. The British relationship with China, for example, was shaped almost entirely by plants. The two nations fought the lopsided opium wars over poppies, and the Indian tea plantations that fed the immense appetite for what we now think of as the quintessential English drink were grown from seedlings smuggled out of China in an active industrial espionage. Not all botanical interests had such sinister overtones, fortunately. Thanks to Victoria and Albert's German roots, this was a great period of cultural exchange between Britain and Germany one of the fruits of which was the introduction of the Christmas tree. As we saw in the previous episode, this was a golden age for the natural sciences, and there was widespread interest, especially among Charles Darwin and his fellow biologists, in what could be learned from plants. And the general public was fascinated by the diversity of species being brought back from every corner of the globe. Kew was founded to cater to all three needs, serving the role of experimental garden, laboratory, and showcase of botanical diversity, and naturally, it deserved buildings worthy of its importance. The grounds cover an immense space with gardens of all shapes and styles, but it's the three greenhouses at its heart that most eloquently tell the story of Victorian design. The first of these, the Palm House, was built a few years before the Crystal Palace, while the Water Lily and Temperate Houses opened just after the Great Exhibition. We've already seen in our visit to Oxford's Museum of Natural History and its glass-roofed central gallery that architects were quick to embrace the new technologies of iron founding and mass production of glass. But it's at Kew where you can best appreciate how the potential of this new technology was realized. The temperate house is cavernous. The water lily house is gem-like, but it's the palm house that really exemplifies the age in which it was built. Standing in the central hall, 
which soars high above even the tallest trees housed there, is just as awe-inspiring an experience today as it must have been in 1848. The ornately decorated metal creates a delicate scaffolding that the glass seems almost draped across. Even on a gray day, like the one on which I visited, the deceptive thinness of this glass skin lets in the third component of the building's design, light. The sunlight that streams in from all sides is, of course, necessary for the colorful forest of tropical plants inside to survive, but it was also a powerful statement about what could be accomplished in the brave new world of the industrial age. Do yourself a favor, and find one of the tightly spiraling staircases up to the walkway above. Ascending those stairs is one of the most Victorian experiences imaginable, and it'll let you appreciate the design of the building. It's often compared to the upside-down hull of a ship, which is no accident, because while this building was designed by an architect, the fantastically named Decimus Burton, it was built in collaboration with the Irish iron founder Richard Turner. Turner was just one of a generation of industrialists and engineers that made use of new materials and techniques to raise some of the most impressive buildings ever constructed. The mile-a-minute pace of invention in the Victorian era made buildings like the Palm House buildable. But the staying power of the great Victorian buildings isn't just thanks to the technologies that made them possible. Industrialization created whole new markets and called for entirely new types of buildings, meaning that architects and engineers had a much larger sandbox in which to create their works. To understand why, and to see how these opportunities played out, we need to leave London and head to the north of England, the heart of the Industrial Revolution that made all of this possible. even more massive building began to rise on the banks of the River Eyre in Yorkshire. Salt's Mill, named for its founder, Titus Salt, is a massive edifice from the outside, but it's not till you're inside that you realize its true size. Unlike some of the other Victorian buildings we've visited, this is not because of some huge central hall. Rather, it's the maze of rooms, some containing bookstores, some museum exhibits, some antique shops, some galleries of works by native son David Hockney, that just keep on opening up before you, one after another. Salt didn't have shops in mind when he built the structure. Instead, he had an even bigger moneymaker on the brain. Weaving. Wool had been big business in Yorkshire for centuries. It made the great Cistercian abbeys of Fountains and Kirkstall wealthy, and it spurred the growth of cities like Leeds and York. But until the 18th century, spinning and weaving were mostly cottage industries. Then, in 1770, in the neighboring county of Lancashire, a new invention changed everything. Patented that year, the spinning jenny allowed multiple spindles of wool to be spun at once, vastly increasing the single worker's output, making mass production possible, and lighting one of the Industrial Revolution's biggest sparks. Several other innovations in the textile industry quickly followed, and before long, weaving moved from homes to factories. The scale of Salt's Mill shows just how important wool had become by the Victorian era, and the fact that Titus Salt could afford to build it shows just how lucrative it could be, especially after he began importing prized alpaca wool. Textiles weren't the only industry that saw similar innovations spurred by new technologies. Advances in other fields are what made the metalwork and glass shell of the Kew greenhouses possible, 
and especially on the coal-rich north, factories of all types had begun to dominate the landscape before Victoria took the throne. Salt's Mill is an especially important example, not only because of its size, but because of the town of Saltaire that surrounds it. Walk the streets of Saltaire, and you'll probably notice that all the buildings, from the factory to the shops to the rows of houses, share many features. They all have rounded arches over the windows. Many have false pillars and other features reminiscent of Greek or Roman architecture. And everything is built from the same tan stone. The explanation for this remarkable similarity is simple. Titus Salt didn't just build a mill in Saltaire. He built Saltaire. It's what's known as a model village, commissioned by an industrialist to house not only their factory, but its entire workforce and the infrastructure to support it. Salt genuinely seems to have believed that, by creating Saltaire, he was doing right by his workers, and in light of the crowded and often unsanitary conditions faced by laborers in larger cities, the same conditions that Charles Dickens campaigned against his whole life, there's an element of truth to this. But the fact that he named the town after himself suggests that on some level he may have seen himself acting like the nobility of earlier eras, charged with the welfare of those that worked his lands in exchange for their fealty. The heroic statue of salt in the town's main park, flanked by hard-to-take-seriously plaques of alpacas, lends some support to this suggestion. But Titus Salt was no nobleman, and the social system that broke British society into two monolithic classes, which had been crumbling for centuries, was being dashed to pieces by the same new technologies that made Salt's mill possible. public park that Titus Salt's statue lords over is one sign that a new social order was on the rise. Until very recently, parks had been the domain of the nobility and the monarchy. Kew, for example, had been a royal estate before being converted into a botanic garden. But newer parks, like the one in Saltaire, or the green spaces of Sydenham where this series began, were meant for a much wider audience. The rich still promenaded in the parks, to be sure, and the gates were even open to the poorest workers, but the vast majority of the people visiting them in the Victorian era didn't fit into either category. The seeds of the middle class had been growing for a long time in Britain. Arguably, 
It began with medieval merchants in the major cities that were neither laborers nor nobility. You can see just how wealthy and influential some of these groups were in the nearby city of York, where around 1360 the Merchant Adventurers Guild built the hall that still bears their name, one of the most important buildings from the Middle Ages still standing in England. But it was the growth of industry before and during Victoria's reign that really allowed this social class to expand. Innovations in agriculture and transport increased food supplies and allowed populations to soar. An increasingly interconnected United Kingdom and world made migration much more common, changing the demographics of where people lived. Cities, many of which had previously been little more than dots on the map, were the major beneficiaries of this change, and places like Leeds suddenly found themselves in need of bureaucrats and civil engineers to help the metropolis function. In the north, where flowing water and, later, coal for powering mills were abundant, this growth was particularly rapid, and positions like civil servant and industrialist, neither of which had really existed before, were in demand in Yorkshire and Lancashire. And with money changing hands faster and in greater quantities, commercial interests of all kinds expanded far beyond the banks and guild halls of earlier generations. The result was a massive, increasingly powerful, and difficult to define middle class. Titus Salt would have been a member of it, whether he liked it or not, as would the shopkeepers occupying the Saltair storefronts. In the world of fiction, the moneylenders Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge would have been part of the middle class, but because he worked as a clerk, not a laborer, so would Bob Cratchit, the poster child of Dickensian poverty. In the early days of the Victorian era, the traditional nobility still had a tight hold on British society and wealth, but by its end they'd been supplanted by the up-and-coming middle class. Like their aristocratic predecessors, this class wanted to celebrate their newfound success with their own brand of monumental architecture, and Victorian engineers were happy to oblige. Many of the resulting structures were grandiose testaments to the new positions created by and for the middle class. Salt's Mill and other factories are one example of this. Civic structures are another, and were also great ways of showing off a growing city's prestige. Leeds has one of the most impressive in the form of its Greek column Town Hall, which, tellingly, is decorated with carvings celebrating the arts and sciences. To really get a sense of how Victorian engineers and architects responded to the needs and tastes of the middle class, don't head to Leeds Town Hall, but to the covered markets and shopping arcades that surround it.
Charles Dickens had London in mind when he had the ghost of Christmas present lead Scrooge through a convivial marketplace overflowing with fresh fruit and sumptuous cuts of meat. So did Sir Arthur Conan Doyle when he sent Holmes and Watson to the goose cellar Breckenridge at Covent Garden. It was these scenes that suggested Victorian architecture to me as a seasonally appropriate topic for this series. But if you want to experience settings like them for yourself, your best bet is to leave London for the smaller financial hubs that came of age during the Industrial Revolution. When the population of Yorkshire exploded, different cities carved out different niches for themselves. Leeds, an old market town, made itself indispensable to the burgeoning wool, flax, and iron industries by becoming a financial center. It has some absolutely gorgeous old banks, but what really sets it apart are not the buildings in which the rich stored money, but the spaces where that money was spent. The most Dickensian of these is also the largest, and, though it grew from a Victorian core, was mostly built in the opening years of the reign of Victoria's son, Edward VII. But Kirkgate Market has all the hallmarks of the earlier era. Vaulted glass ceilings supported by iron columns, a riot of color and decoration, even a hint of the Gothic in the peaked shape of some of the galleries. The market's still an active one, and the stands selling meat, produce, flowers, and almost anything else you can imagine really do transport you back to the city's industrial heyday. Kirkgate is the largest and probably most impressive of Britain's covered markets, but another Leeds landmark is truly unique. The Corn Exchange, as the name suggests, was built to provide a place for the buying and selling of grain. A genuine Victorian, dating to 1864, it was remodeled a century later to be a home for independently owned shops. The idea was an inspired one, allowing any visitor to Leeds to appreciate the huge, vaulted, partially skylit oval dome that was a tour de force of Victorian engineering, and that remains a sight to behold even now. But the city's real claim to architectural fame is its association with what is, to me, the quintessential Victorian building, the covered arcade. I'll admit to having neither the interest nor the disposable income to be drawn to the upscale stores in these shopping centers, but they're amazing examples of what the builders of the era could accomplish when handed a blank slate and asked to design an entirely new type of structure. In effect, all they really are is narrow, covered passageways, but their metal-supported glass ceilings were a testament to British industry, and the engineers and architects that built them clearly saw the appeal they would have for the richer members of the middle class, and showed off what they could do accordingly. Some are downright gaudy, in truest Victorian form, but my favorite is the somewhat more understated Thornton's Arcade. Here, the glass roof is supported by curving, Arabic-inspired arches framing another favorite of the era, the mechanical clock. On this one, life-size characters from Ivanhoe, including Robin Hood and Friar Tuck, ring out the hours thanks to an elaborate unseen system. Just as in London's Big Ben, clockworks were seen as ways of showing off the possibilities brought about by the growth of Britain's industry and the ingenuity of its inventors. While the presence of machines like the Ivanhoe clock in the middle of a shopping arcade might seem random today, it speaks to the strong connection between Victorian engineers and artisans. The markets and arcades of Leeds showcase some of the most beautiful fruits of this collaboration, but to see the most visible, we need to head south and west to my one-time home, and the former proving ground of the man that would become the UK's greatest engineer-architect.
gateway to England's West Country, Bristol had an industrial growth spurt at the same time as its northern counterparts. It has its covered markets and palatial bank buildings just like Leeds, though if you want quality arcades, your best bet is a short train ride across the Welsh border to Cardiff. But unlike many of the other Victorian metropolises, it was a major economic hub long before England's other Golden Age queen, Elizabeth I, took the throne. Its position at the mouth of the River Avon made it one of the island's busiest ports. The Gothic opulence of the medieval St. Mary Redcliffe Church, funded by the merchants of Bristol, speaks to the city's wealth, and a seemingly out-of-place whale rib supposedly gifted to the church by explorer John Cabot underscores the city's global reach. It was connections to the sea that made Bristol prosperous, but while overtaken by ports such as Liverpool and Belfast, it continued to capitalize on those connections during the Victorian era. Storage spaces were needed to store the goods that now flowed in not just from the North Atlantic, but from ports around the world. And all along the diverted and dammed river known as the Floating Harbor sprung up narrow warehouses. This being the Victorian era, these weren't simple structures, but elaborate brick buildings inspired by the architecture of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. The style was so distinctive that it became known as Bristol Byzantine, and you can still see it all over the city's industrial core, especially in the row of warehouses along the Welsh back. But even as this style developed, Bristol was beginning to look away from the ocean and to position itself at the center of a very different kind of web. The prime mover behind this transition was Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Brunel was a second-generation engineer. His father Mark was already famous for his projects in and around London. But it was Isambard who proved to have not only a real knack for engineering, but an eye for design that made his structures stand the test of time. The most spectacular of these spans the Shearwald Avon Gorge at Bristol's western edge, not only showcasing Brunel's talents, but clearly underscoring his vision of the city as a transportation hub. The Clifton Suspension Bridge remains Bristol's iconic structure, and it's easy to see why. An early rendering suggests that it was meant to have an Egyptian design, a few hints of which still remain in the arched brick towers that support the span, but the final version much more clearly embraces the technology of the Victorian present. The bridge allowed road traffic across a previously impassable barrier, but Brunel had far more consequential connections to build on the east side of town. No Victorian invention had a more immediate impact than the railroad, and Brunel was among those who helped to do so. He engineered the Great Western Railway, whose western terminus is Bristol's Temple Mead Station. The other end of the line is the far more famous Paddington Station in London. Both buildings were designed by Brunel, and while he could have made them blocky and utilitarian, he once again opted to show off both form and function. From their elaborate stone facades to their by now very familiar iron-supported glass roofs, the stations are beautiful examples of yet another type of building new to the Victorian era. But what's really important is not the buildings themselves, but what they represented, a gateway to the rest of Great Britain, one through which a traveler could pass and find themselves in London in what was then an unimaginably short time. The nobility and the wealthier members of the middle class could even make this journey in considerable style in a first-class carriage. Thanks to Brunel's third great addition to Bristol, they could take an equally luxurious voyage across an ocean. Unlike the bridge and the train station, this construction was never meant to sit in place. Instead, the SS Great Britain connected Britain with New York, and did so at great speed. After a long and varied career on the seas, the ship was brought back to Bristol and restored as a museum, one of the best places anywhere to get a taste of travel in the Victorian era. Moored next to it is a replica of Cabot's ship, the Matthew. 
1497, when the original Matthew made the much shorter crossing between Bristol and Newfoundland, it took nearly two months. The Great Britain could get to New York in two weeks. The secret to this comparatively blinding speed was the steam engine, another of the inventions that made the Industrial Revolution possible. This same innovation also powered a huge array of British mercantile and naval ships that opened up lines of communication on a truly global scale. It was along these lines that Victorian design, a style with its feet squarely planted in the past while being built with cutting-edge materials, would spread worldwide to become the first truly international style, forever altering the course of architectural history. Thanks for joining me on this third leg of our Victorian voyage. Join me again on the first Tuesday in January to explore the unexpected ways in which Victorian architecture laid the foundations of modern design, thanks to the communications revolution brought about by Victorian engineers and inventors. If you want to explore these destinations yourself, I'll be posting all the relevant background information following that episode on our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com. Until then, you can always use the site to delve into destinations from earlier episodes or contact me with any questions or comments you might have. I like to think Voyages has really started to get its feet under it in 2021, and if you want to help me expand its reach, you can do so by rating it, reviewing it, liking it, and subscribing to it on the podcatcher of your choice. Most importantly of all, if you're visiting family or friends this holiday season, let them know about it. Word of mouth is absolutely the best way to get new listeners involved. Thanks again for joining me on this final episode of the year, and I hope you'll join me again in 2022 and for all the voyages to come. <laughs> <laughs>